A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trish, a terrible thing happened to me. I need your advice on it as my long-term friend. Okay, okay. Uh, I was dropping my lovely Mabel off uh, at a play date party and somebody, one of the mums, gave me, I don't know her, I've never met her before, an impromptu hug. It was a really <gasps> oh. big one. It was a nuzzling into my neck, big old hug. Oh no. I froze, Trish, yes. because you know I think huggers should be arrested and that I don't like people touching me. She clearly doesn't listen to this podcast because she would know to give you a sort of two-metre perimeter, wouldn't she? <laughs> Not one <laughs> anywhere near you. <laughs> what did you do? Well, I froze, stepped back yeah. and said I wasn't a hugger. And she said she was a hugger. And I said, well, I'm not a hugger. Uh, and then I felt bad about not being a hugger. Then I felt bad about not being a hugger in front oh, of Mabel. Dear. Oh, dear. Uh, and then I thought, hold on a minute, it's my personal space. And then mm. I thought, oh, my God, what about the flu? I don't want to get that again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, okay. So it was a whole set of thoughts based oh. around a hug. I did a bit of you. I did a bit of overthinking on it. What do you think? I, I feel, though, it is my space. Well, it is. I think that's a big topic for another episode. But I just want to remind you, you know how I start my day with who, who I hug first thing in the morning, don't you? Oh, not that furry <laughs> first thing. Yes, we have a little bit of furry love, we call it, first thing in the morning, Margot and I, and it sets the day off very well indeed. I don't like the sound of fairy love. It sounds like code of something terrible. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is episode two of season eight and we are back in full swing now. Lovely listeners, how are you finding it? Because we are now dropping, it's a podcast term, Trish, <laughs> dropping on a Monday rather than a Sunday. Has anyone noticed? We do like to shake things up a little, don't we, to keep everybody on their toes? We do, we do indeed. And Mondays, I think, are a good day. I'm always quite perky on a Monday. I quite like to get the week going. And um, we've changed up the music too. I wonder if anybody's noticed that because we wanted something a little bit more dancey. And there's no law against having a little boogie while you're listening to your favourite podcast, is there? I don't like the word boogie. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you're not back boogieing this week, Lorraine, because last week no. you uh, you promised us the big comeback, didn't you, after contracting the uh, flu, festive flu? Well, I did. And I am actually, I'm on top form at the moment, Trish. Oh, good. Um, and I'm delighted, obviously, that I was able to announce my comeback at the same <laughs> time as Madonna announced her comeback. <laughs> Okay, I, I feel 
It's beginning. I feel that this is an intro to a little bit of name dropping on your part, is it? Endless. Yes, yeah. Endless name dropping. Did I tell you that Madonna sent me a signed 40th birthday card? It's behind me on the wall, actually. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, you didn't tell me that. I feel like I have told you that. No, you didn't. Mm. Oh, well, I'll put it all on the Facebook group. Anyway, Madonna, she's 64, has announced her 40th anniversary comeback tour this year. And she has said that she is only going to play the hits. You see, that's why women are amazing, Trish, because Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart, those silly old men, they would be playing the new (laughs) stuff. Nobody wants to hear. Madonna knows what people want. (laughs) She cares about about her fans, not about herself. Yes. Maybe. Anyway, anyway, enough of my Madonna obsession. What do we have on this week? Well, our guest, I mean, I'm saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, she might be able to out name drop you because she can name drop Gwyneth Paltrow and Claudia Winkleman. Uh, Both of them are fans of her and her new book which is all about cracking the code to good relationships. Um, She is Janet Reebstein, one of the world's leading therapists. I've got a lot of questions for Janet about women in midlife and how we can live more harmoniously with others, because it's something we're all trying to do, I think. I think we could give a TED talk on that, my little friend, because we've been relating to each other, haven't we, for more than 25 Mm. years, and you have now become my colleague. Some would say my boss, (laughs) as well as my friend. (laughs) I have, uh, which is why we thought we'd actually focus this show on friendship today and also our, in our jibber-jabber and also in our chat with Janet. And um, talking of friends, we want to meet all of you, our lovely friends um, who listen to the podcast and who are on our Facebook group at Postcards from Midlife Live, which is taking place on the 19th and 20th of May in London at the Business Design Centre, because I think it's an opportunity to meet some new friends there, isn't there? There is indeed. Um, we are going to share the science around friendship in our jibber jamba section. Now, I'd just like to say, Trish, that you are the Cagney to my Lacey, <laughs> the Monica to my Phoebe. See what I did there? The Lucia to my Mia. That's a white lotus oh. reference. I'm only halfway through. Don't tell me anymore. Prostitutes. Okay. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> the Patsy to my Eddie. You are also actually officially, talking of our alter egos, the Marion to my Millie. I had to put... Um, Judgy Marion and Furious Feminism. Oh, yes. Um, yes, exactly. We'll be rolling them out later on in the in the series, won't we? <laughs> so do stand by for that. Shall we get started on today's episode? Right. So welcome to our friendship special and the jibber jabber section of Postcards from Midlife. Today, we're going to take a little trip down friendship lane, not because we've gone all soft and cuddly, because as we've just heard, I am not (laughs) soft and cuddly. Quite soft and cuddly, I'd say. (laughs) But because it is our duty as your favourite midlife podcasters to share life changing information. So a new book called The Good Life and How to Live It, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness by psychiatrist Dr. Robert Waldinger and Dr. Mark Schultz, has come to a startling conclusion on humanity and happiness. Now, it does seem that the answer to all those how can I be happier questions is actually quite simple, though it does require some proactive thinking about the people around you in your life. Yeah, I think we both found this book to be quite something, didn't we? Because Mm -hmm. the authors base all their thinking on the longest in-depth study of human life ever done, ever. Exactly. It's 84 years worth of data of a cross-section of Americans. Um, Obviously, they started... (laughs) 
just with men because nobody cared about women back in the day, certainly not the scientists. Uh, but women came into the Harvard study more significantly as the men started families. And then the research looked at everything from health to environment and how it affects the way we feel about life. And this is where we get to the friendship part of it, because the number one conclusion from the book is a notion we've discussed before on the show. And it's when it comes to being consistently happy or physically healthy, it is the quality of your long-term relationships that matter most. That's the science. So good relationships, not just romantic relationships, make you happier, healthier, and you will live longer. The TED Talk on the study has now had more than 44 million views. I had a look at it this morning. So it's worth going there for a quick snapshot of all the research if our listeners wanted to do that. But the study also showed happiness is not genetic or predetermined. Trauma and challenges don't make you less happy. It's how you deal with them that counts. Social media is actually good for you because it connects you to others in a curated way. And the study also showed what we do know already, Trish, that loneliness is more unhealthy than anything you can do. Even your prunes, Trish. If you're lonely and you eat prunes, <laughs> the prunes won't counteract oh, it. Oh, leave my prunes alone. But yes, I think you're right. If we want a good life, then we need good friendships because medically speaking, they're lifesavers. Um, the study also showed that when asked at the end of their lives, quite sad, mm. what they may have done differently, many participants said they wish they'd been less stressed in midlife. Uh, so those happiest at 80 had been happy at 50. Yes, they wish they'd worried less and opened up to others more in midlife. The authors say that it's all down to your social fitness. So we make quite a fuss about being physically fit. We actually mm -hmm. have to be socially fit in midlife, which means mm -hmm. actively maintaining friendships, being proactive about seeing or talking to those you care about around you who are not family. Friendship, they say, is like a muscle. You need to keep it strong and you can start working it at any age. So new friendships are important too. Mm. Well, you know what's been getting me through January? Gin? No, dry January. Dry January, of course. But no, it's been seeing and speaking to friends. So I've made a really mm. conscientious effort to try and fit in quick coffees, a little walk. And I've also thought about the ones that are drifting a bit. So some of my kind of secondary school mum friends, because obviously the kids have moved on. And also some old work colleagues, you know, some of the ones that I really, really love and um, wanted to, you know, just keep that connection going. So I've been doing mm. that. And um, I think because you have that bond of shared experiences, it's it's easy to kind of pick up and continue and, and stop letting it drift. Yeah, yeah. I think also what interested me in the book is it points out that when we do get to midlife, we become a little bit more self-focused. Um, and it's harder, therefore, to step into other mm. people's lives and properly connect. We get a bit more introspective in midlife and we think about ourselves more, as we should as women. Um, but we do really need to be careful, they advise, not to lose the ability to step into others' mindsets. So the main advice is practicing generosity in friendships. So that means that you look at a friend, see what they need, really listen to them when they're talking but you have no expectation of them doing anything in return for you. So you really dump that kind of why should I mindset that we often mm. um, slip into. You have to be really purposeful about this generosity of friendship. I think that's quite a hard thing to do, Re being properly selfless and listening yeah. and helping. But it makes people feel really seen, it says in the book. Yeah, I think it does. And I think you're, you're right. It's that kindness, empathy and listening. And not trying to jump in and solve the problem. They might not want the problem solved. They might just want, you know, a friendly um, person to listen and just show them a bit of love and kindness. Maybe not hugs in your case. I have to say, I struggle a bit. One of my things, I do tend to jump in and try and solve the problems and offer advice. I think because we're journalists, we do a lot of research and reading. So I'm 
consciously trying to stop doing that at the moment unless you know somebody actually asks me something and I may know it I may not in the book it says you have to be a bit like a a therapist you have to be almost silent non-judgmental not put any kind of how would that make me feel what can I do about it how can I help because all of those things are about you making you feel better they're not about the person being seen for whatever they're telling you it's a really big chapter in the book it's really worth reading I also offered an idea of something that I tested Mm, this week because like you, I've been uh, getting in touch with lots of friends. I've seen loads of lovely friends Mm. actually in January. They offered the idea of the eight minute phone call, Trish. Now, you know, we never phone anyone because we WhatsApp them and text them and we know all about them because they're all on Instagram or Facebook or everything. So we think we we know about that person, so we don't need to phone them. So apparently, according to therapists in the book, If you hear the voice of someone you like or love or have affection to, it helps you maintain your emotional equilibrium. So it's really important for you physically, again. Yes. So eight minutes, you have to put a timer on. It's enough to connect, apparently. Um, So Claire, my best friend Claire, moved out of London about 12 years ago. So I wasn't, I didn't see her much. I used to work with her on Marie Claire. That's where we Mm -hmm. first met. We've probably known each other or longer than you and I have known each other. But we rarely sort of chat. We see each other in the summer, but we don't sort of have that chat. So... I texted her and said, I'm going to ring you, but I'm only going to talk to you for eight minutes. <laughs> Bit weird. She think you'd gone mad. <laughs> she said, well, I've got 10 minutes now because I'm in between meetings. So yeah, go do it, do it. So I rang her and I have to say it's one of the most sort of sweet oh. emotional phone calls I've ever had. She, I said, why, why don't we talk more? I've only got six minutes left, Claire, I said to answer this. <laughs> And she said, well, you know what? I sort of think of you as a sister, she said. So I kind of feel like your family. So I, I guess I neglect calling sometimes and I feel exactly the same. And oh. we had this really emotional moment where we both realised we sort of saw each other as family and as, as sisters. Oh. <laughs> it was really sweet. We were quite tearful by the end of our eight minutes. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. Yeah. So I would totally recommend the eight-minute phone call. Text someone, say, are you free? Can I chat to you for eight minutes? You can do it between things, mm. you know, you can do it in the car, you can do it while you're waiting. It was really useful. And actually, now we are going to be seeing each other in a few weeks' time. But, you know, I, I, I loved doing it. So if you want to connect or you want to get in touch with new friends, make new friends, that eight-minute call is yes. really helpful. And you felt the love, didn't you? You felt the love. Without having to be hugged. It was <laughs> great. That was a hug. Exactly. And like a verbal oh, hug, Trish. I mean, you, there was a lovely piece, wasn't there, in the Cut website uh, last week by an author uh, who set up playdates for her 80-year-old mum yeah. who'd moved across the country to be with her and she felt extremely lonely and she she advertised her mum on the next door <laughs> app and has now created a group of new friends her mum's age because she knew it would affect her mum's longevity and improve the quality of, of her life at that age. Well, that's what the book's saying. She's mm. probably added another five years to her life. It was a really heartwarming piece, actually, because her mum sounded like a right firecracker, didn't she? Blimey. <laughs> yes. I wanted to be friends with her as well. With that in mind, Trish, I've done an advert for you. Oh, no, you haven't. <laughs> you're putting me on next door. Yeah, I'm going to put you on next door when you're 80. Go on, Mum. Oh, God, what's she going to say? Listen, former shot put champion, <laughs> we'd have to put that picture of you with your shot put medal. Seeks play dates with like-minded bird-watching ladies slash Smiths fans mm-hmm. slash women who put their thermal vests on in August. Yes. One careless owner, that's me because he's quite careless, <laughs> comes with a giant judgmental furball prone to sitting, I said sitting, in your handbag. Oh. Does that work for you? <laughs> you you're expecting Margot's, Margot's life expectancy. Well, you think I might have Margot Mark II by that point or maybe Mark IV. 
Well, she's like your um, spirit thing in His Dark Materials. Yes. You're watching that, where they're attached to you and they can't ever be removed. Oh, That's what she's yeah, like. I think she is. She is. Uh, uh, shall I do a little quick one for you if I was popping you on? Go on then. Okay. Don't upset me mm-hmm. and don't be kind because okay. you know I don't like You don't like, like either. either, do you? You've got to sit somewhere in the middle. Right. Tricky. Highly fertile celebrity magnet seeks pals for chats over cheese and hobnobs. Must be up for a bit of argy-bargy and have an encyclopedic knowledge of the life and times of the rock. <laughs> That's genius. Yeah, I think if you if you found someone capable of that, you'd be fine. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? It is good. Well done. Well done. Yeah. But shall we meet our guest now? Because she's also going to talk about friendship. So we should crack on with that because we all want meaningful friendships so we can live longer and feel happier. This week's special guest is Professor Janet Reibstein, the eminent clinical psychologist and therapist whose new book, Good Relations, Cracking the Code of How to Get On Better, promises to share the formula for building happy and long-lasting relationships with everyone in your life. The book has already garnered praise from Gwyneth Paltrow, who describes it as brilliantly empowering and truly life-changing. And Janet has many other celebrity fans too. Claudia Winkleman has called her utterly fantastic, while the broadcaster Kirsty Young describes her as captivatingly wise. Janet, who is 75, was born in the USA and began her career in magazines in New York before completing a PhD and clinical training in psychology and moving to the UK some 40 years ago with her British husband, the experimental psychologist Stephen Monsell. They live in Bristol and together they have two sons and three grandchildren. Janet is Professor Emerita at the University of Exeter, and her career has also encompassed TV, broadcasting, research, and authoring six previous books. And it's her new book that Lorraine and I are both fans of because it gives advice and practical tools to make the most of our relationships with partners, parents, children, siblings, and work colleagues. And we've invited Janet onto the show today to talk about the connections that we think become more important than ever in midlife, friendships. She says engaging in relationships productively impacts health, well-being, financial security and happiness. So let's meet her and find out how to go about it. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Janet. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Oh, well, listen, congratulations on the new book, Good Relations. We were talking about it a little bit earlier on the show. Uh, But can we start by asking you why it's so important to invest time and energy into relationships? and probably more time and energy than most of us are doing right now. Yes, and that's one of the reasons for for writing the book. I wanted to highlight not just that it's a pleasure to have good relationships, but it actually helps your health and your happiness. It's a thing that's most correlated with success in life overall, and most correlated along with not smoking and good diet, more than exercise even, than living a long and healthy life. You talk in the book about relational capability and the ability to do well socially is more important for success, as you, you've just said, and it's a, more important than high IQ for academic success yes. as well. That's yes. kind of fascinating. And what, what is the link? What is happening? Is it something happening in your brain or is it just makes you happy? So you're tilted in a good direction? What Being friends, having good friends, how does that make you successful? Okay. So it's kind of all of those things, Lorraine. It's, it's, um, one of the things about having good relationships is that it actually stimulates oxytocin, which makes you feel happier. So it's actually That's a hormone, a, isn't it? Oxytocin. Yeah, on a chemical level, it's a good thing. And the more you get of that, that also adds to your health. So 
you know, that that, that there's kind of a bottom line physical str- um, stratum for that kind of claim about it being so important. It's related to intelligence. There's a kind of, you know, it's emotional intelligence. There's a kind of intelligence, but the kind of thing that gets scored in IQ doesn't necessarily bring it all in. So that's one of the reasons that it, it's so associated with success in every way. Because if you're emotionally intelligent, you're often also relationally intelligent. And what happens with relational capability or intelligence is you get people on your side. And I don't mean that in a manipulative way, quite the opposite. But people want to be there for you. And you kind of, you know, that begins a sort of uh, a virtuous cycle. So there have been studies, um, longitudinal studies of deprived kids through life who become successful. And the thing that they have is this thing called relational capability. It seems to trump a lot of really dire circumstances. So if you have the ability to engage with others and have others be on your side, you can find a mentor and you can find a set of mentors. You can find teachers who who believe in you, who want to sort of see that you do well. That sort of begins a whole process. Once you Once you show you do, once people get gratifying results from you, it keeps building. And you keep becoming, in a way, more skillful in the way that my book is talking about being skillful. You can reduce relational capability to a set of really good skills. Mm -hmm. And each time you do it, you get better at it. So that's what relationally capable people have. And so obviously some people are born like that and they're charming and they're lovely and uh, many, many of us aren't like that. But it is something that that we can learn because in your book, you describe um, this set of skills, don't you? A kind of process that you can go through to improve every kind of relationship that you have, whether it's a, you know, a partner, work colleagues, friendships, extended <coughs> family. So do you want to just talk us through those four steps and what they are and how we can apply them to each of those? Okay. Yes, I want to say something first about what you said about some people are born with. Mm. You know, there are some people who you know, coming into the world, they're easy babies, they have lovely smiles, they get smiles back. So in a way, they start out with that extra advantage, but you can learn it. And that's one of the things that those longitudinal studies show. Also, once you start having gratifying experiences, for whatever reason, you can start learning them yourself. And we've broken them down, people who've researched it. I'm I'm one of them, others have done their own jobs of researching them into these four key ones. There are other ones, but I've sort of boiled them into the four ones. So one is this first step, which is being able to manage your own emotional states. When you're out of control, all you're thinking about is yourself. And the thing about emotional relational capabilities, you think about yourself and the other person. So you're always thinking about the interactions and you're noticing them. That's the key. So being able to do that, if you're in a really tense or ruffled or upset state for any any reason, you're over, you're you're in a kind of fight flight. In that sense, the hormones are taking over in a bad way. And you're not able to think. So you're not able to observe either what you're doing or what the other person's state is. So the first step is emotional management. And you know, that's where uh, mindfulness and a, a lot of you know yoga practices, things like that, are really coming to the fore. So meditation is is that kind of thing of being able mm. to put yourself into a calm state. Now, I'm not saying you can in every interaction get into a meditative state, but what you can do is train yourself to be conscious that you're in that state. 
in a state of upset. And if you are, one of the things we know is things like magical thing of five or six deep breaths, magical. They put you in, they override that fight flight state that you're in. Your shoulders go down, your limbs become much more relaxed, your teeth don't get so clenched, and you just kind of magically in a receptive state. And it takes a second. So yes, you can do it with, and, and I've done it on the bus. I've done it so, and I know people are not watching me. I've done it when I, you know, somebody's been challenging in their behavior. And I, I know they're not going, oh, she's taking six deep breaths now. So you do it. And you can do that. And that's the first step. So going on, that puts you in. And also it's important to label that you're, you know, where you are. And if you can figure out why, oh, that person just was rude to me. Then you go, who's that person? And you're in the state of thinking about that other, other guy. And if you do that to the best of your knowledge, and if you know them well, then you're more able to do it better. But if they're strangers, you do it as best you can. He's, he's just had a hard day at the office, or my child was really upset by something at school. So you do that, and then you're in what's called a mentalization state. That's the second step, where you're thinking about the other person, you're trying to feel for them, but you're also thinking about what could be going on for them not just what's going on for you. That's the big difference in this book about a lot of self-help books, because they're asking you to go take that step, look at the other person, and then think about your interaction. And that's the third step, the third skill. How can you make your interaction shape it so that it's going to be heard and received in a way that could be best for both of you? I mean, maybe you don't want to have anything to do with that person again, but do you want to do it with dignity? Do you want to have something to do with that person that makes oh, I don't know, that ride on the bus more comfortable. So you smile and go, yeah, it's a hard day, isn't it? And then suddenly they're not your enemy anymore. And you're just going, oh. Love bombing, I call it. Absolutely. Quite effective. (laughs) Someone's absolutely furious with you saying, okay. Yeah, no, I think there's a a little story in the book about me with with a waitress where I was very disgruntled and... I could have been really horrible. In fact, I was pretty horrible. And then I apologized. And then, by the way, that's the fourth one. But that was a love bombing moment where mm-hmm. I said, thank you for doing this. It was so kind of you or something like that. I can't remember what I said. And she's on my side then. And that's the fourth bit. When things go wrong, you take responsibility. Or if there's a misstep, if you and I just were, oh, for three sentences ago, I didn't see Lorraine looking at me thinking, yes, I understand. And she looked a little like, really? I would go back and go, let's take a step back. I'm not sure, was that, did we get each other then? So it's a kind of repairing and apologizing if you need to. Apologizing is hard, isn't it? You say that in the book. That's yes. the toughest bit. It is the toughest. Especially for husbands, I find. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you find it easy to say sorry to him? Oh, I don't know, Janet. I think that's a long conversation. <laughs> I have to say, it's not easy. I mean, we certainly Mm. recognize it. I'm always struck when my kids were growing up. I have one child, but they're both good at it, but one child who was the the naughty child, I hope he's not listening, the naughty child when he was growing up. And I was always amazed that he could say sorry to me because I don't remember doing that so well myself as a child. (laughs) The book covers all relationships. Um, It's brilliantly helpful, particularly for couples, I think. 
but we're going to focus on friendships here. Yeah. So what, what do you mean by friendship? Because there's a kind of level, isn't there? There's kind of micro friends, new friends, friends you've had a million years, yeah. but might like, might not like. What what does friendship mean? How What does that term mean for you? Well, it's so, you know, and here I would recommend another book on friends because I think it's brilliant by Robin Dunbar. It's a, it's, it's, it's very comprehensive because he's done a lot of really good research on friendships. People define friendships in very different ways. But what we do know is that there's sort of bottom line things. And the really most important thing is trust and honesty. So if you can have trust and feel that your friends are being honest with you, that's the bottom line. And from that grows a lot of different levels of friendship. I don't think you'd have friendships without those two of any level. Right. So when people talk about friends, they also they often talk about support, feeling valued, feeling able to be listened to and understood. And I think that sort of thing in, in its broadest ways characterizes any interaction that goes well. But in its deepest ways, it's that you feel mirrored. You feel, I get that person. That person gets me. I can trust that when I say something, you know, they nod. I know what that nod means. It means it's going deep inside them. They really get it. It's, it's reflecting back. We have the same ideas about things or experiences, or they get what I mean. I think that really is the basis for deep friendships. There's other levels of friendship, people you, have, you share interests with or activities with or exchange duties with, you know, when, and, and, and that has to do with stages of life, what you kind of need at different times. So, you know, swapping childcare that kind of things. So I think that sounds transactional and there are transactional friendships, but I think that if transactional friendships also have that base of trust and and honesty, they become friendships. What you say about, you know, your friends uh, helping you at different life stages. And I think for midlife women, you know, our age where you've got, you know, the younger children, the older parents, the career, everything that's menopause, everything. I mean, my goodness, if we didn't have our friends, I think that is a really, it's a really tough place to be. Do you think, I mean, obviously, friends are important at every life stage. What is it about midlife friendships, do you think, that are particularly important? Boy, do they come to the fore then. Mm -hmm. They really, really do. And I think, you know, because we get so busy with with children, if you have children, and careers, career forming at the sort of earlier stages of adulthood, or attention and or finding partnerships, kind of by midlife, your attention is on other things. You kind of consolidated that. And friendships really do move up. And you also have more time. If your kids have left home, you can go out at night. <laughs> you don't have to get babysitters. You can you can go to the gym till after work. You don't have to worry about picking up kids from activities <laughs> or school. So really, it opens up time and, and energy for friendships. But I do think it's also about it's a time of reflection. And you want to reflect with people who really want to reflect back what their experiences are too. And you just have so much more pleasure. And I'm older than midlife now. I can tell you that it becomes, that's where you, you really set it up. And at this stage of my life, my God, friendships are what make you thrive, really thrive. I mean, they do then too, but that's where it really, really blossoms. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because there is a sort of softening and more of a vulnerable stage that happens in midlife. But we do often hear about women who say their friendships have fizzled out. They've they've drifted apart or they feel their friends 
aren't there for them, which might be the way they are being and the, the changes that are going. And obviously people move away, life changes. You know, do you always have to lose those friends? Can you reconnect? How, how does that work in midlife? I can tell you I have reconnected with friends who I thought were lost to me. I mean, I, live, I moved continents. So yeah. that was really, that meant keeping up friendships was really difficult. And some of them naturally just fell away. And I do go back to America a lot. So, I mean, obviously during the pandemic, I lost a couple of years there. But I have picked up friendships over the years. So for my own life, I can tell you it's possible. Friendships drift away because your situations change. And often your situations don't match at certain points. If you don't have kids and all your friends start having kids, you don't have time, you don't have the same interests. It changes when you get to midlife. You often can pick up those friends that you weren't friendly with then, again, because you have more matching interests and things. And drifting apart aside, uh, where else do you think friendships go wrong? I mean, because there can be conflicts. I think people can feel resentful if one person's life is going in one direction and theirs isn't. They might feel left behind. They might feel excluded if they don't have kids. And possibly envy and competition too can can come into it. Or you you just start finding someone really negative and draining. How do you cope with those kind of when you think, oh, oh my goodness, this isn't right, this isn't this isn't the negativity bit? Of us. I find awful. Yeah. Don't we don't like that, do we, Trisha? No. Really draining with friends. <laughs> no negativity. No, it's very draining. So negativity. That, that, I think that's a really important point. I think friendships need to be nourishing, and that's why they're so wonderful. Everybody needs to kind of do a friendship check if they feel that there's something just draining them and that they aren't feeling supported by their friendships or their particular friends. You know, again, you have to look at the interaction. Sometimes you have to think, well, let's backtrack. Where did it go off? If it was once on, <laughs> where did it go off? And is there something that we can re- we can resurrect? And is there a, a level of honesty? I mean, one of the things that, that Robin Dunbar's research found, I think it was his, well, anyway, he talks about it, is that deep friendships People rate those friendships where you're able to have honest conversations about things that are difficult. And that's that's part of the honesty bit. You could, in a way, try and test that to see if you can have that kind of honest conversation. If you can't, you know, maybe that's the test that it's over. Sometimes it's it's kinder to just fade. It's really kinder. But sometimes ghosting, of course, is the cruelest because it leaves you with what I do wrong. So if you can have conversations that are honest and not hurtful, but really trying to be productive, and maybe you can lay friendship to rest together, you know, go, it's just not working now. It doesn't work now. Maybe it can another time. That would be a productive way of doing it too. So say you've known someone for 20 billion trillion years, right? And then you work together. Mm, I see where this is going. <laughs> yes, yes. I was wondering this where I come out to. <laughs> and you've got to set up a business and it starts as a side hustle. So then it becomes massive and huge and you've got to do a business plan and you've got to talk to lawyers and all of that. Does it change the dynamic of your friendship? And what is your advice on navigating that? Because, you know, obviously I'm talking about young Trish and me. <laughs> Um, but also a lot of women in midlife do yeah. set up businesses yes, they because they suddenly got the time and they do it with the people they know. <laughs> um, yes. And when you transfer into that kind of friend colleague thing, how do you navigate that with a healthy mindset? It's really hard. I mean, that's why they, people always say John picks friendship, but 
and and business. God, Trish, she said it was really hard, and she's the expert, <laughs> best-selling author. It is really hard. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. I mean, family businesses, you know, sometimes crash and often thrive for generations. So it's about being clear about boundaries. And it's about being able to have those productive, constructive conversations. And that's where the kind of what I'm talking about, the um, those four steps, those languages, using the, the collaborative language, being able to mentalize, well, where is Trish in this little friction moment? Where am I? What's the aim we're trying to get here that we can collaborate over? And how can I shape my language and tone and nonverbals so that it gets heard? This is the difficulty. This is the boundary bit that we have to negotiate. So being clear about the boundaries as the frame and then being able to use those step, those, those four skills. And you have to be more conscious of it than you would in your normal friendship life, you know, friendship interactions. And what about loneliness? Because it's a killer, like properly a killer medically. It can, yeah, it is. It's worse than everything, isn't it? Apart from smoking, I think, um, as you mentioned. If you are lonely, and I'm always advising this on my social media, you can make friends via Facebook. And lots of our listeners have yes. actually mm. made friends via yes. Facebook by joining groups with interests that you, I mean, I've met millions of women by the sea going for swims with strangers in places yeah. I didn't want to swim on my own. But I am quite an extrovert. So a lot of people say, but I'm, I would feel conscious of doing that. I would feel self-conscious. I would be worried about what people would yeah. think of me. How do you make friends at this stage of life if you're a bit shy, if you're not that kind of me, give me attention person as I, one of us might yeah. be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, look, being alone, loneliness is hard. Being alone can turn into loneliness. That's the really bad one. But being alone... And feeling you're alone and making having to make a step alone is really a very challenging thing. You kind of have to do it though, because no one's yeah. going to come to you. No one knows inside your head that you feel alone, that you feel lonely. Mm. In fact, sometimes people who are not extroverts look like the opposite. They, they, they look like they're very self-contained. They look like they don't need you. And so the message you give out is that you're not needy of other people. So only you can make that first step. And yes, you do have to. Like I, I often think about people who either lose a partner or for mm. one reason or other, or make a move in, in midlife. You kind of have to be very proactive because as I say, no one's going to know that in your head you need something. So you already made a, a very good suggestion, online stuff. Finding activities, interest-based activities are the first best place to go because you're going to find people who share something with you. You know, you move to a community, you share a community. That would be a, you know, a community activity thing would be one thing. If you're interested in art, definitely take art classes or find some music appreciation thing to go to. Something or sports. If you have one friend who will take you, if you're in the position of having even one, ask that friend to take you someplace or ask their friend to introduce you to things or people. It starts snowballing. Yeah, I think it's that feeling needy is not a bad thing. You know, no. a needy person is not a bad thing, is it? To show that vulnerability and softness and say, I like, I don't want to do this on my own. I think it's once you can get past it, that's the mm -hmm. hurdle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think if we relabel needy, it's a healthy desire. Mm -hmm. uh, you've touched on your friendships over the years, Janet. And you talk in the book about this idea of like you have a core of a few 
really trusted. And then this outer circle could be up to about 150 people. Has that kind of stayed true for you as you've grown through the years? Absolutely. I have one friend who's also called Janet. We found each other at first day of, you know, actually before university. And it turned out our mothers had been best friends when we were, when they were children. And we been swung on the tree uh, in Washington Square Park. There was a photograph of us as babies. And then our mothers drifted apart. Anyway, she is still probably my central, central person. That's not to negate that there are others in that central core. Some of them also go back that far in my life. But as I've moved, every place I've moved to, I have had a core group of people that I interact with a lot and, and I can depend on. And there's it's a small core group, but it's there. And then I have a lot of outer circle friends who I feel I love. Mm-hmm. I love less intensely as you go out <laughs> into the bigger <laughs> circles, but 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 I feel very loyal and devoted to and I feel that it's shared. Can I just ask quickly about boundaries? Because we often say this and we say it when we talk about parenting and we Trish and I talk about you know well actually I think Trish and I we are quite good at boundaries yeah, but yeah. a lot of women even in their own domestic romantic relationships find it really hard to set boundaries saying no is something you tend to discover in midlife so if you can't set them and you repeatedly can't set them how do you start setting a boundary because you could be quite brave I think if it's not your natural state to say I'm not coming because I don't want to, or I think it'd be really useful for our listeners to learn about boundaries. I think, first of all, you have to become aware of the fact, you know, if you become aware that you're feeling uptight because you're being asked to do something that doesn't feel right, I think the first thing is to be able to be aware of that. And then it would be good if you could figure out some clear sort of delaying tactics, you know, phrases. If somebody asked me to do something, this is much earlier in my life, dinner party or something, I'd say, sure, I am married to somebody who doesn't do that. (laughs) So one of the first things I had to learn was, I have to ask my husband. Let me ask my husband. Let me stop. Let me stop and think, would he want to go? So I learned to, because I had to, go, I'll get back to you. That sounds great. I'll get back to you. There's a bunch of things, phrases that could help you get out of that uncomfortable state, which wouldn't be hurtful to the other person, which I think you can adopt. We're both in our mid 50s. And I think, Lorraine, we both honestly feel you're fitter. more in your mid 50s. <laughs> <laughs> a year, a year. I haven't mentioned it yet this season. No, you haven't. I'm yes. younger. Of the yes, two. you've yeah. got it in there now, though, haven't you? <laughs> But I think we we would both say that we feel so much better than we did in our 40s for all sorts of reasons, you know, menopause, the chaos of parenting, etc. Does it keep getting better? And what else do we have to look forward to in our 60s, 70s? I think it does get better. I think Mm -hmm. it does. All sorts of things get better because you get wiser and you Mm -hmm. get more confident. Life's a whole process of figuring out who am I really? You know, what can I rely on? And you just get better and better at that. What doesn't get better is you can only have so much control over over your own body. And also, in a way, that does get better because you kind of know, I'm not going to play tennis anymore. No more gymnastics for you, Trish. (laughs) And trampolining for you, Lorraine. No trampolining. No. At your knees. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, kind of like if I had a swimming pool right at the bottom of my garden, 
that's what I do every day. Mm-hmm. I only don't slim swim because it's a pain to get to. So I know I like that. I know I like aerobics. So certain things you know you can do for your body, but your body does start telling you don't do that. <laughs> so you don't do trampolining anymore, things like that. So yeah. that doesn't get so good. This, by the way, happened over pandemic. That also doesn't get so great. You're, um, you're pointing to your hair. My hair. Which is Lovely. gorgeous. Is that gray or blonde? It's a mixture. It's beautiful. <laughs> really sweet. But you were dark. You were always dark, weren't you? Very I would dark. Have black hair. Yes. I have black hair. Wow. So is that quite, how does that feel for you in terms of identity? And it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I, I'm just looking. I have a bulletin board of family photos. So I'm looking out of the corner of my eye. I'm looking myself at just under 50 with black hair, really black hair. That's who I think I am. This, looking at this white haired person, I don't mind it. It's just getting used to it and kind of going. It's a massive transition. They call it the liminal void, don't they? There's a big transitional thing you go through. Yes with your identity but you must see a lot of patients or clients who talk about that how to come to terms with their aging older different identity i haven't seen so many like that people don't talk about it so much i think that's an interesting point lorraine that i think they do it sideways and women will talk as friends because it's a little shaming to say oh who am i what do i look like now you know it's a little bit Am I too vain to be thinking this way? And and it's not. It's about identity. It really is about claiming identity and feeling okay about this identity. And aging is something that we're not really still okay about yet. Mm-hmm. I think it's wonderful you do this thing about midlife because midlife is you're you're claiming it as a a stage that's great and you can be beautiful and you can be growing and you can be flourishing. I think the same is true until you get really ill of beyond midlife, which was really your question. I think that really does become just as fulfilling. Well, you look incredibly glamorous. You're still rocking your red lipstick. That's a signature look for you, I think, isn't it? It, It's Well, that's gone with the white hair. Yeah. It's gone with the white hair. Oh, right. Okay. Mm, I didn't used to. No. Okay. Well, it looks amazing. It looks amazing. (laughs) So we can't let you go because you are kind of one of the, you're a mega best-selling author. You're one of the foremost therapists talking about relationships in, in the world. We can't let you go without some life lessons. When I'm wandering around the kitchen later, wondering who the hell I am and why I'm not 18 anymore, <laughs> what are the life lessons, Janet? What have I learned? Well, I would say value your friendships and value your family, put them central. And also, this three, also really find if you can, find your footing and stay with it. And this leads on to the other one. Because I feel I feel really happy that I dug deep as a psychologist into a particular thing. Um, you know, I did it as an academic. I did it as a clinician. It was very deeply satisfying, my work, is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say here. And I've been in jobs before that weren't. I mean, I was younger, so who knows whether that was just that I wasn't ready to be satisfied. But that brings me to the third thing which is stay away from regret. And it brings me to the third thing, because when I was younger, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to, and I started out that way, but I wanted, I had this great idea. I was going to be a war correspondent. I also wanted to have kids. I also, in those days, there was no way to compute those two. So I ended up 
not doing that. But for a while, I, I had a friend who became a, new, a reporter, and I'd see her on television, and I would I'd feel, why didn't you do that? So that was the regret. I realized, thank goodness, and this is where you don't regret. You embrace what you work best with. You embrace your values. You embrace your choices that were healthy. And you embrace why you went up down a particular path and not another. And that way, you reflect. I came up with three things. Don't regret. You reflect in that way I've just described. And you repair that feeling of, oh, why not, into thank God. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jenna. And we, we actually have a copy of your book to give away on our Facebook group uh, if our listeners want to head over there and find out more. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's nostalgia time where we go back to the days of yore, days before. Has anything inspired you, Lorraine, on friendship? A little noodle about friendship, perhaps? Well, when I think of duos and I think of us as duos, I sort of see us as um, Patsy and Eddie because obviously we lived magazine life. (laughs) And before they uh, cut all everyone's expenses in about 1998, Mm -hmm. uh, I think you were on Marie Claire and I was on Elle. We did have that really kind of extraordinary Ab Fab times, didn't we? And obviously Ab Fab was one of my favourite shows. And I used to watch it and I'd think, why do people find this funny? This is Some of these things have actually (laughs) happened to me. So I was nostalgia noodling about the most Ab Fab things that ever occurred during my career. So when we did the 30th birthday, Cosmopolitan's 30th birthday, Mm -hmm. I was editor. I wanted to have the cover line "Sex in Space." <laughs> oh yes, I, I think we've we've heard this story. Yes, but do it again, do it again. So we did try to hire one of those mm. satellite planes that one of the planes that takes satellites up basically oh to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. And obviously, that I did speak to a man in Russia, which is one of the more bizarre conversations I've ever had. But we couldn't hire it because it was millions. Trip. So <laughs> we found some people who'd actually done that. There was a very famous 
porn star who'd, mm. who'd done that and written about it. So we interviewed her. And then I remembered that when I joined Elle in the first week, the fashion team who were about to move on from Elle when I joined uh, rang me from Africa where they were doing a shoot and said, could they hire a helicopter on expenses? Oh. <laughs> and I said, I can't believe you've even rung me to ask that. Of course not. You can't hire a helicopter oh, on expenses. Do you remember those um, Chanel shows that we used to go to, those amazing, beautiful Chanel shows yes. where we would have meet in the hotel opposite the actual show, but Chanel would want us to get in a car to go around the go corner. Go around the corner. Like Patsy and Eddie. It was cars. It was cars, wasn't it? And bottles of champagne. And I have to say, I did love the fact that, and this is maybe where we differ from Patsy and Eddie, is the uh, going on the benders. I think uh, those massive benders. <laughs> I mean, I've had a few. We've had a few, but not quite yes. to their scale. I think one of my favourite ones was when... Um, do you remember they they go on a bit of a bender and somehow they uh, wake up on a rubbish barge going down the street? <laughs> <laughs> like just rubbish sacks with bottles of um, bolly in their hands and a bit of smudged makeup and a wayward beehive. I mean, you know, if that wasn't aspirational. I like the one where she walks up the steps to her house, puts her, mm. very drunkenly, puts her key in the door and then just falls sideways into the head, <laughs> which actually I feel I might have done. You've definitely done that not too long ago. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Postcards from Midlife, our friendship special. Uh, new episodes are available to listen to every Monday. I hope you were listening at the beginning of the show when we told you that. Every Monday on your podcast provider, and we would really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And um, if you could rate and review it too, that would be fantastic. And please tell all your friends about us. If they want to meet us, if you want to meet us and meet all our celebrity guests and midlife experts, then do book tickets to come and see us at Postcards from Midlife Live. That's Friday, May the 19th, Saturday, May the 20th in London. Go to postcardsfrommidlifelive.co.uk to sign up for your tickets. We will put all the details on our private Facebook page, which we'd love to welcome you to as well. Um, if you're not already a member, do come over and join in the chat. Yes, there are so many brilliant women on there sharing all sorts of fabulous things. And you can, of course, use the Facebook group to post any feedback on the topics we discuss, as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or covered at the show. In fact, the live show, the celebrities you love and experts you'd like to hear from. Or you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.